Yesed. Chapter 118 The conspiracy theory of society comes from abandoning God and then asking who is in his place. Karl Popper, Conjectures and Refutations, London, Rutledge, 1969, Roman 4, page 123. The flight did me good. I not only left Paris behind, I left the underground, the ground itself, the terrestrial crust, sky and mountains still white with snow. Solitude at ten thousand meters and that sense of intoxication always produced by flying, the pressurization, the passage through slight turbulence. It was only up here, I thought, that I was finally putting my feet on solid ground. Time to draw conclusions, to list points in my notebook, then close my eyes and think. I decided to list, first of all, the incontestable facts. There is no doubt that Diotalevi is dead. Gudrun told me so. Gudrun was never part of our story. She wouldn't have understood it, so she is the only one left who tells the truth. Also, Garamond is not in Milan. He could be anywhere, of course, but the fact that he's not there and hasn't been there the past few days suggests he was indeed in Paris, where I saw him. Similarly, Balbo is not there. Now, let's assume that what I saw Saturday night in Saint-Martin-des-Champs really happened. Perhaps not the way I saw it, befuddled as I was by the music and the incense, but something did happen. It's like that time with Amparo. Afterward, she didn't believe she had been possessed by Pombihira, but she knew that in the Tenda de Umbanda something had possessed her. Finally, what Leah told me in the mountains is true. Her interpretation is completely convincing. The Provan message is a laundry list. There were never any Templars' meetings at the Grand Jodim. There was no plan, and there was no message. The laundry list for us had been a crossword puzzle with the squares empty and no definitions. The squares had to be filled in such a way that everything would fit. But perhaps that metaphor isn't precise. In a crossword puzzle the words intersecting have to have letters in common. In our game we crossed not words but concepts, events, so the rules were different. Basically there were three rules. Rule 1. Concepts are connected by analogy. There is no way to decide at once whether an analogy is good or bad, because to some degree everything is connected to everything else. For example, potato crosses with apple because both are vegetable and round in shape. From apple to snake by biblical association. From snake to doughnut by formal likeness. From doughnut to life preserver, and from life preserver to bathing suit, then bathing to sea, sea to ship, ship to shit, shit to toilet paper, Toilet to cologne, cologne to alcohol, alcohol to drugs, drugs to syringe, syringe to hole, hole to ground, ground to potato. Rule two says that if tout se tient in the end, the connecting works, from potato to potato to se tient, so it's right. Rule three, the connections must not be original, they must have been made before, and the more often the better by others. Only then do the crossings seem true because they are obvious. This, after all, was Signor Garamond's idea. The books of the Diabolicals must not innovate, they must repeat what has already been said. Otherwise, what becomes of the authority of tradition? And this is what we did. We didn't invent anything, we only arranged the pieces. Colonel Ardenti hadn't invented anything either, but his arrangement of the pieces was clumsy. Furthermore, he was much less educated than we, so he had fewer pieces. They had all the pieces, but they didn't know the design of the crossword. We, once again, were smarter. I remembered something Leah said to me in the mountains when she was scolding me for having played the nasty game that was our plan. People are starved for plans. If you offer them one, they fall on it like a pack of wolves. You invent and they'll believe. 
It's wrong to add to the inventings that already exist. This is what always happens. A young Herostratus broods because he doesn't know how to become famous. Then he sees a movie in which a frail young man shoots a country music star and becomes the center of attention. Herostratus has found the formula. He goes out and shoots John Lennon. It's the same with the SFAs. How can I become a published poet whose name appears in an encyclopedia? Garamond explains. It's simple. You pay. The SFA never thought of that before, but since the Minutius plan exists, he identifies with it, is convinced he's been waiting for Minutius all his life. He just didn't know it was there. We invented a non-existent plan, and they not only believed it was real, but convinced themselves that they had been part of it for ages, or rather they identified the fragments of their muddled mythology as moments of our plan, moments joined in a logical, irrefutable web of analogy, semblance, suspicion. But if you invent a plan and others carry it out, it's as if the plan exists. At that point it does exist. Hereafter hordes of diabolicals will swarm through the world in search of the map. We offered a map to people who were trying to overcome a deep private frustration. What frustration? Belbo's last file suggested it to me. There can be no failure if there really is a plan. Defeated you may be, but never through any fault of your own. To bow to a cosmic will is no shame. You are not a coward, you are a martyr. You don't complain about being mortal, prey to a thousand microorganisms you can't control. You aren't responsible for the fact that your feet are not very prehensile that you have no tail, that your hair and teeth don't grow back when you lose them, that your arteries harden with time, it's because of the envious angels. The same applies to everyday life. Take stock market crashes. They happen because each individual makes a wrong move, and all the wrong moves put together create panic. Then whoever lacks steady nerves asks himself, who's behind this plot, who's benefiting? He has to find an enemy, a plotter. Or it will be, God forbid, his fault. If you feel guilty, you invent a plot, many plots, and to counter them, you have to organize your own plot. But the more you invent enemy plots to exonerate your lack of understanding, the more you fall in love with them and you pattern your own on their model, which is what happened when Jesuits and Baconians, Paulicians and Neo-Templars each complained of the other's plan. Dio Talevi's remark was, Of course you attribute to the others what you're doing yourself, and since what you're doing yourself is hateful, the others become hateful. But since the others, as a rule, would like to do the same hateful thing that you're doing, they collaborate with you, hinting that, yes, what you attribute to them is actually what they have always desired. God blinds those he wishes to destroy. You just have to lend him a helping hand. A plot, if there is to be one, must be a secret, a secret that, if we only knew it, would dispel our frustration, lead us to salvation, or else the knowing of it in itself would be salvation. Does such a luminous secret exist? Yes, provided it is never known. Known, it will only disappoint us. Hadn't Allier spoken of the yearning for mystery that stirred the age of the Antonines? Yet someone had just arrived and declared himself the Son of God, the Son of God made flesh, to redeem the sins of the world. Was that a run-of-the-mill mystery? And he promised salvation to all. You only had to love your neighbor. Was that a trivial secret? And he bequeathed the idea that whoever uttered the right words at the right time could turn a chunk of bread and a half-glass of wine into the body and blood of the Son of God, and be nourished by it. Was that a paltry riddle? And then he led the church fathers to ponder and proclaim that God was one and triune, and that the Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son, but that the Son did not proceed from the Father and the Spirit. Was that some easy formula for Hylix? And yet they, who now had salvation within their grasp, do-it-yourself salvation, turned deaf ears. Is that all there is to it? How trite! 
and they kept on scouring the Mediterranean in their boats, looking for a lost knowledge, of which those thirty denarii dogmas are but the superficial veil, the parable for the poor in spirit, the elusive hieroglyph, the wink of the eye at the pneumatics. The mystery of the Trinity? Too simple, there had to be more to it. Someone, Rubenstein maybe, once said when asked if he believed in God, Oh, no, I believe in something much bigger. And someone else, was it Chesterton, said that when men stop believing in God, it isn't that they then believe in nothing, they believe in everything. But everything is not a bigger secret. There are no bigger secrets, because the moment a secret is revealed it seems little. There is only an empty secret, a secret that keeps slipping through your fingers. The secret of the orchid is that it signifies and affects the testicles. But the testicles signify a sign of the zodiac, which in turn signifies an angelic hierarchy, which then signifies a musical scale, and the scale signifies a relationship among the humors, and so on. Initiation is learning never to stop. The universe is peeled like an onion, and an onion is all peel. Let us imagine an infinite onion, which has its center everywhere and its circumference nowhere. Initiation travels an endless Merbius strip. The true initiate is he who knows that the most powerful secret is a secret without content, because no enemy will be able to make him confess it, no rival devotee will be able to take it from him. Now I found more logical and consequential the dynamic of that nocturnal rite before the pendulum. Belbo had claimed to possess a secret, and because of this he had gained power over them. Their first impulse, even in a man as clever as Allier, who had immediately beat the tom-tom to summon all the others, had been to wrest it from him, and the more Belbo refused to reveal it, the bigger they believed the secret to be. The more he vowed he didn't possess it, the more convinced they were that he did possess it, and that it was a true secret, because if it were false he would have revealed it. Through the centuries the search for this secret had been the glue holding them all together, despite excommunications, internecine fighting, coup de main. Now they were on the verge of knowing it, but they were assailed by two fears, that the secret would be a disappointment, and that once it was known to all there would be no secret left, which would be the end of them. Allier then thought, if Belbo spoke, all would know, and he, Allier, would lose the mysterious aura that granted him charisma and power. But if Belbo confided in him alone, Allier could go on being Saint-Germain, the immortal. The deferment of Allier's death coincided with the deferment of the secret. He tried to persuade Belbo to whisper it in his ear, and when he realized that wouldn't be possible, he provoked him by predicting his surrender, and further by putting on a display of pompous melodrama. Oh, the old Count knew very well that for people from Piedmont stubbornness and a sense of the ridiculous could defeat even the fear of death. Thus he forced Belbo to raise the tone of his refusal, and to say no definitively. The others, out of the same fear, preferred to kill him. They might be losing the map, they would have centuries to continue the search for it, but they were preserving the vigor of their base, slobbering desire. I remembered a story Amparo told me. Before coming to Italy she had spent some months in New York City, living in a neighborhood of the kind where even on quiet days you could shoot a TV series featuring the Homicide Squad. She used to come home alone at two in the morning. When I asked if she wasn't afraid of sexual maniacs, she told me her method. When a sexual maniac approached, threatening, she would take his arm and say, Come on, let's do it. And he would go away, bewildered. If you're a sexual maniac, you don't want sex. You want the excitement of its theft. You want the victim's resistance and despair. If sex is handed to you on a platter, here it is, go to it. 
Naturally, you're not interested. Otherwise, what sort of sexual maniac would you be? We had awakened their lust, offering them a secret that couldn't have been emptier, because not only did we not know it ourselves, but even better, we knew that it was false. The plane was flying over Mont Blanc, and the passengers all rushed to the same side so as not to miss the view of that blunt bubo that had grown there thanks to a fluke in the telluric currents. If what I was thinking was correct, then the currents didn't exist any more than the Provam message existed. But the story of the deciphering of the plan, as we had reconstructed it, that was history. My memory went back to Belbo's last file. But if existence is so empty and fragile that it can be endured only by the illusion of a search for its secret, then, as Amparo said that evening in the tender, after her defeat, there's no redemption. We are all slaves. Give us a master. That's what we deserve. No, Leah taught me there is more, and I have the proof. His name is Julio, and at this moment he is playing in a valley, pulling a goat's tail. No, because Belbo twice said no. The first no he said to Abulafia, to those who would try to steal its secret. Do you have the password? was the question, and the answer, the key to knowledge, was no. Not only does the magic word not exist, but we do not know that it does not exist. Those who admit their ignorance, therefore, can learn something, at least what I was able to learn. The second no he said on Saturday night when he refused the salvation held out to him. He could have invented a map or used one of the maps I had shown him. In any event, with the pendulum hung as it was incorrectly, that bunch of lunatics would never have found the X marking the umbilicus mundi, and even if they did it would have been several more decades before they realized this wasn't the one. But Belbo refused to bow. He preferred to die. It wasn't that he refused to bow to the lust for power. He refused to bow to non-meaning. He somehow knew that, fragile as our existence may be, however ineffectual our interrogation of the world, there is nevertheless something that has more meaning than the rest. What had Belbo sensed, perhaps only at that moment, which allowed him to contradict his last desperate file and not surrender his destiny to someone who guaranteed him a mere plan? What had he understood, at last, that allowed him to sacrifice his life as if he had learned everything there was to learn without realizing it, and as if compared to this one true absolute secret of his, everything that took place in the conservatoire was irreparably stupid, and it was stupid now, stubbornly, to go on living. There was still something, a link missing in the chain. I had all of Belbo's feats before me now, from life to death, except one. On arrival, as I was looking for my passport, I found in one of my pockets the key to this house. I had taken it last Thursday, along with the key to Belbo's apartment. I remembered that day when Belbo showed us the old cupboard that contained, he said, his opera omnia, or rather his juvenilia. Perhaps Belbo had written something there that couldn't be found in a bulafia. Perhaps it was buried somewhere in name omitted. There was nothing reasonable about this conjecture of mine, all the more reason to consider it good, at this point. I collected my car, and I came here. I didn't find the old relative of the Canepas, the caretaker, or whatever she was. Maybe she too had died in the meantime. There was no one. I went through the various rooms, a strong smell of mildew. I considered lighting the bed warmer in one of the bedrooms, but it made no sense to warm the bed in June. Once the windows were opened, the warm evening air would enter. After sunset there was no moon, as in Paris, Saturday night. The moon rose late, I saw less of it now than in Paris, 
as it slowly climbed above the lower hills in a dip between the Brico and another yellowish hump, perhaps already harvested. I arrived around six in the evening. It was still light, but I had brought nothing with me to eat. Roaming the house, I found a salami in the kitchen hanging from a beam. My supper was salami and fresh water, going on ten o'clock, I think. Now I'm thirsty. I brought a big pitcher of water to Uncle Carlo's study and drink a glass every ten minutes. Then I go down, refill the pitcher, and start again. It must be at least three in the morning. I have the light off and can hardly read my watch. I look out the window. On the flanks of the hills, what seem to be fireflies, shooting stars. The headlights of occasional cars going down into the valley or climbing toward the villages on the hilltops. When Belbo was a boy, this sight did not exist. There were no cars then, no roads. At night there was a curfew. As soon as I arrived, I opened the cupboard of juvenilia. Shelves and shelves of paper, from elementary school exercises to bundles of adolescent poems and prose. Everyone has written poems in adolescence. True poets destroy them. Bad poets publish them. Belbo, too cynical to save them, too weak to chuck them out, stuck them in Uncle Carlo's cupboard. I read for hours, and for hours up to this moment I meditated on the last text, which I found just when I was about to give up. I don't know when Belbo wrote it. There are pages where different handwritings, insertions, are interwoven, or else it's the same hand in different years. As if he wrote it very early, at the age of sixteen or seventeen, then put it away, then went back to it at twenty, again at thirty, maybe later. Until he gave up the idea of writing altogether, only to begin again with Abulafia, but not having the heart to recover these lines and subject them to electronic humiliation. Reading them, I followed a familiar story. The events of name omitted, between 1943 and 1945, Uncle Carlo, the Partisans, the Parish Hall, Cecilia, the Trumpet. These were the obsessive themes of the romantic Belbo, disappointed, grieving, drunk, the literature of memory. He knew himself that it was the last refuge of scoundrels. But I'm no literary critic. I'm Sam Spade again, looking for the final clue. And so I found the key text, it must represent the last chapter of the story of Belbo in Name Omitted, for after it nothing more could have happened. 